the onus of proof that something works, something that's more expensive or more invasive, the onus of proof is on you to show us that it works in a randomized controlled trial, because that is the way that we have to prove things worked. I mean, there were, I think, more than 30 observational studies showing that HRT associated with better outcomes and one randomized control reversed, one randomized control trial reversed at all. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is episode 101. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to our centennial episode, which was released on uh, the five-year anniversary of um, you know my nonprofit startup, makeadent.org, uh, last week on September uh, 16th, it was with Professor Valentin Fuster. Um, you know, I recommend for all of us to listen some incredible pearls of wisdom there um, by, a, by a man who needs no introduction. And, you know, with, with that uh, preamble, um, I have a gentleman here with me who also needs an introduction. He's uh, very well known um, in the cardiology community and beyond. Um, I have with me uh, the, the honor of... Uh, of Dr. Mandrola's presence, John Mandrola. And, uh, you know, I've uh, had the privilege of uh, co-authoring a JAMA Network paper with him, uh, which came out uh, about two years ago um, on, 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 on a topic which he's passionate about, which is, uh, you know, constructing trial design properly so that we can answer questions meaningfully. Um, just to introduce uh, Dr. Mandrola, not that he needs any introduction, uh, he's a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist um, in Kentucky, um, is, has a busy clinical practice. Uh, he's the host of um, Medscape's The Heart.org podcast, uh, um, which you know, we all, all know. Uh, he has um, um, a space of his own uh, through a platform called Sensible Medicine, which um, if um, any of you have not subscribed, I highly recommend that you subscribe to it. Um, you'll get uh, these updates um, on email uh, whenever he has uh, something written up, which is, you know, very informative uh, for um, clinicians uh, on, you know, in the trenches and at the bedside taking care of our patients with complex comorbidities. And, um, and uh, you know, he's a, a former Indiana man. So, you know, with that introduction, Dr. Mandrola, welcome on the show. And thank you so much for doing this for us. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's an amazing honor to follow Professor Fuster. I mean, that's crazy, but so thank you. No, it's, uh, you know, the, the pleasure is all ours to have you. And um, I'm gonna begin by by asking you um, a little bit about your, your journey into where you're at now. Um, you know, early life, um, what inspired you to lead a career in medicine? Um, and then what, in, what inspired you to be a cardiologist? Uh, I mean, uh, you, you have all your training at, uh, Indiana university and, you know, at the time you trained, um, pretty, some pretty famous stalwarts in our field were at IU. So let's start there. Yeah, I grew up. Uh, thanks for asking. I grew up in in a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut, and just on the Massachusetts Connecticut border, a little small working class town. 
And I was just kind of a regular student. And really, I was inspired to go into medicine because my guidance counselor told me um, that I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. And uh, he said that I, I told him that I wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor. And he said, you need a different plan because you're not smart enough. And then that kind of inspired me. And when people tell me I can't do something, I always feel inspired. And and really, uh, when I went to college, I went to college in New York State, a place called Hobart College. And I really buckled down and and I started studying and I found that, well, crap, if you study, these tests really aren't so hard. And uh, I did well there and um, went back home to medical school to UConn, University of Connecticut. But the thing is, Anchor, was that this was the heyday of modern cardiology. We were medical students and rotating at Hartford Hospital and St. Francis Hospital. And and this was the era of thrombolytic uh, therapy. We just could start doing things for people with MI. Uh, I used to escape away to the CCUs and hang out with the cardiology fellows there. And I really just got so interested in cardiology because it was such a booming field in in, in that time. And then, then I decided that I really wanted to come to the Midwest. I needed to go away from the East Coast. All my friends stayed there. I just thought this was some time in my life that I could do something and go away. And I uh, decided on Indiana University. and. And I felt like the best way to get to a place with that many famous people was to do residency at Indiana and really work hard there and and get in. And so that's what that's what happened. And then, gosh, during that time, it during that time, I mean, EP came into being. Right. So that was the era where we started doing SVT ablation. Um, the, the the folks who taught me. Uh, William Miles, who's at Florida now, and and Larry Klein, who's in private practice in Indianapolis. I mean, they had just gone to Sonny Jackman's lab to learn how to do SVT when I was a resident. And so when I joined EP, everybody was learning together. SVT cases were like seven hours. And um, also, uh, this was the era when defibrillators started moving from the abdomen to the to the chest. So it was really just an, an amazing time to, to, and it was all pure luck. I, I just happened on to these things. Uh, and then, uh, when the job opened up here in Louisville, uh, it was a great job. And I, I took a private practice job here and I've been at the same hospital with some of the same people for 26 years. And, uh, so it's been, been great. Yeah. Um, you know, is was there any particular uh, moment when in medical school that that um, inspired you for a career in internal medicine, followed by cardiovascular diseases, or was it just the gravitas of uh, Indiana University and and the people there that that was an obvious choice for you? In medical school, the uh, I remember cardiologists come in. I remember being on rotation as a medical student, and I remember cardiologists coming down to the ER and just taking over these situations and being, you know, it it, it just looked like such a cool field, um, you know. And basically, they were just they were just giving thrombolytic therapy and then taking patients to the CCU and. I was just so moved by that that I decided first that I wanted to be a cardiologist and then internal medicine uh, was the was the route there. And, 
you know, my my dad and I got into a station wagon and we just drove, uh, I think it was like 10 days. We drove across the country and every day I would interview at a different place like Iowa and Minnesota and Chicago and Indianapolis and Ohio State, all those places and come back to the hotel and write letters, thank you letters to the residency program. And uh, and then that's that's really that's really that's really how it happened. Um, and then when I was in Indiana, it was really a difficult decision between between PCI and and EP because remember that was also the time that uh, we started doing acute PCI for, rather than thrombolytic therapy. So there was that transition and interventional, and also the the interventional life was really amazing because you could stop MIs with acute PCI, and I did some of those as a fellow. Um, but I I just decided that I really enjoyed the electrical aspects better and 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 it was more fun and so i i I chose ep and it's been a great field it is a great field i love it you know no thank you for for that background was at the time you were um then deciding to take on a job um did you ever consider remaining in academia you know given the background with iu and with university of connecticut yes i did you know at the time at the time, it was like a it was like a fork in the fork in the path. You know, it was like, should I stay in academics? Should I go into private practice? And really, I I decided on private practice because I was just I really just enjoyed taking care of patients and doing ablation and and doing that. And I I felt like I felt like I was that was what I wanted to do. And it was it really wasn't until ten years into my uh, career uh, in private practice that I started delving into academics and writing. Um, and, and now I, I do some academics and, but I, I don't, I don't regret it. Um, it was a consideration though, but I really enjoyed taking care of people and being a doctor. And that's what, that's what I do. That one, that's what you went to medical school for. Um, so that's that, what I know, that, that, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think a lot of us, uh, um, you know, that's our calling is, is to take care of patients. And, you know, that's what, that's what drives us, um, you know, sort of, uh, making those decisions that, you know, you hope would, uh, you know, change lives for the better for, uh, the communities that you serve, uh, that drives you, uh, to a career in medicine. Um, when did, um, podcasting happen for you? Uh, you know, cause y- you said that it took you about 10 years to start writing, um, or maybe, you know, putting, pen to paper to, you know, write thoughts, which, which you do such an eloquent job. Um, how did podcasting happen? Yeah. So the, um, for 10 years, all I did was practice medicine every third night call and general call really worked hard. Um, didn't really think too much of anything. And about 10 years into practice around the time that the blog started happening blogosphere remember mommy blog started it and and i i one of the teenagers that uh was friends with my daughter said you know john you can you can you can write on the internet and and sign up and have a blog so i started this blog really west fisher uh, uh physiologist in in chicago was one of the first ones and i started reading his blog and i thought this is great and so that's what i started 
I started just writing and I had no background in writing. I'd never written anything other than what was, you know, what we did in college and I didn't know how to write and just started um, doing it. And it got a little bit of traction among some journalists and I got asked to write these blogs for the heart.org at the time. And it was whatever, whenever you want, once a month. And, and then I started writing re more regularly for the heart.org and, about the time that Malcolm Gladwell started podcasting, maybe seven years ago, eight years ago, my editor said, you know, John, she said, young people, young people are getting more and more of their content by listening and you should start a podcast. And I was really resistant. I said, no way. I don't want to do it. I'm a writer. I, I had written, I had read all of these writing books, like literally maybe 10 writing books about and, and studied writing everywhere and just tried to get better at that. And then uh, podcasting started when we first started, it was crazy. I had a little iPhone thing and it was a video and audio and it was so painful with that video. And then we just went to audio and then that's how it started. And then uh, podcasting just I started listening to podcasts and everybody's listening to podcasts uh airpods came to be and and now um uh podcast as a as a forum as a uh, I guess as a device I mean it's just taken off and so uh that's how it got started my editor said you should do this and I said no and she said just try it and we tried it and it just slowly and gradually uh took off yeah no that that's um that's exciting to learn the the natural progression of uh, you know you being a writer and then being being a podcaster how long has it been since you've been doing the metscapes podcast i started with i started i i know this because facebook brought up a, a early memory at like 11 years uh with the heart.org and then i think the podcast started i i suspect it's six years uh, six years ago it's kind of scary because I, <clears throat> I've, I would be really frightened to look back at some of the early, uh, some of the early podcasts because they were probably so bad. Um, and you know now I I have you know I have a microphone and I have you know uh, I sort of have a template. I actually it is it is it is actually writing because uh, it I I transcribed a podcast on Friday and it comes out. I start writing on. I start writing on Wednesday and I really write the script for it. I don't follow the script exactly, but I, I, I start writing on Wednesday, looking at the week's studies and uh, ends up being about 2,500 words, like a 20, 25 minute podcast is about 2,500 words. So it is actually writing, although it's the, it's spoken rather than on paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when you are preparing for an episode, uh, what does that look like for you? I mean, in terms of how do you fit that, you know, for the budding podcasters out there, um, you know, how, how would you describe that, uh, that journey or, you know, that preparation, um, you know, given you are also a busy clinician taking care of patients? Yeah. So my workflow, I've always from medical school on, I've always been a morning person. I just, my brain works better in the morning. So I get up early every day. I go to bed early and I get up early and I, uh, I do my best thinking and writing in the morning before work. And so I, uh, start a couple hours before I go to work and 
uh, you know, the journals have a regular schedule of when they when they publish. As a journalist, I get some of them a little earlier so I can look at that. It's easiest during meetings like ACC, AHA, ESC. It's much easier because there's, you know, 20 or 30 studies in a matter of uh, days. Uh, during the week, I start looking at the major journals and uh, picking out uh, important studies uh, to think about and start writing around really can't start much before Wednesday because uh, really it, it that's when the you know you have to have the studies come out and so I try and pick I try and pick interesting studies that are uh, in cardiology but also tell you know teach other lessons um, observational studies that are confounded or randomized trials that have this weakness or that weakness or this strength or that strength and 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 try and pick out interesting themes and uh, sometimes even delve a little bit outside of uh, cardiology into general medicine kind of things. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, as someone who scans uh, the studies that are coming out on a weekly basis, um, how do you make the determination of, uh, obviously it needs to pique your interest, you know, goes without saying, um, but how, how do you determine the importance of one study over the other? Because, I mean, there's a lot that comes out on a weekly basis. Um, and, you know, sometimes you'll find gems which are, you know, in journals which are not as quote-unquote popular, even though I'd not like to associate that word with, with science. Um, but it, it's sort of, you know, you could only scan as much. Uh, so, you know, the question is, what are some of the um, go-to journals that you would scan? And what are these? what are some of the determining factors for you to pick up studies that you want to pick up? That's a tough one. I would say that, of course, you look at the big ones, right? So I look, you know, I look at New England, JAMA, JAMA Internal Medicine, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, all really, uh, really full of gems, uh, because they've, Rita Redberg has always had, you know, a less is more approach. And I've always loved that. Also, Jack and European Heart, in my journals, like, uh, Jackie P and Europace and and Heart Rhythm, uh, but I, you know, obviously you pick the big ones, right? So if a big drug trial comes out or a big device trial comes out, something that's going to move the field, you you cover that because it's a big it's a big study. But then I try and find I try and find things that I think are interesting from a bedside clinician standpoint, um, and. Like you, you like you said, not always are they big studies, and then the other. So that's one niche, and the other niche I would say is that um, studies that have some critical appraisal lesson, like um, a problem with a control group, or a problem with loss to follow up, or you know uh, something something like uh, that. Uh, statistical significance is barely met, and all of these kinds of topics. And I, to be honest, I'm still learning uh, uh, to interpret these trials. I, I had no idea how complex it was when I when I first started. Um, and then and then that's just the interpretation of the trial as written. But then even the other the other thing that I think that maybe I can offer with 26 years of experience is a little bit on how to translate evidence uh, from trials to the bedside. And and here in my world, uh, one of the big issues that comes up is that I, 
you know, here in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a medium-sized city, we see a lot of older patients with comorbidities and frailty, and trials have so few patients like that. And and so evidence translation is another reason why I would I would uh, uh, pick a study. But the other thing I'd say about picking studies is that when you do this every week um, and you pick four or five studies every week, even if you miss one, it's highly likely that a month later or two months later or three months later, another similar study will come out and that topic will come up. Yeah. Um, so that actually is a good segue for me to ask you about, um, you know, your stance as a practicing clinician, as a cardiologist, as a cardiac electrophysiologist of a medical conservationist, And that is, you know, something which you've um, ascribed that title to yourself, you know, having read your, your writings on sensible medicine and any on blogs on Medscape. And also some of the papers that you pick, uh, you know, which would, um, or, you know, studies that you pick, which, which would summarize conclusions, which aren't necessarily representative of what the data have shown. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the fascinating pieces on sensible medicine, and, and I think for those of uh, you who are listening, who want to then um, actually look that piece up for, from Dr. Mandrola on, on Substack would be, um, the the four um, big studies that you picked from the four big journals um, that you critiqued, um, you know, which were, you know, like you said, reputable, you know, big hitters in the New England Journal and, and JAMA Internal Medicine. And, you know, I, I would agree JAMA Internal Medicine has a lot of gems because it sort of is the less is more uh, theme from Dr. Redberg. Um, you know, there are, um, so my, my question to you is, how, how did you get there? That's, that's question one. And question two is, uh, there are critics to this, this thought and this stance of, of yours uh, in the community, uh, you know, who, are, who have been vocal, who are vocal at the medical meetings, who have been vocal, uh, you know, even on social media. Um, how do you, um, so first of all, how did you get there? And, and second is, how do you... Um, React maybe is is a strong word, but how how would you respond to some of the uh, detractors of your stance? Um, still, you know, giving them the respect that they they deserve because you know there 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 sh- there should be disagreement, which I think is healthy, but that should not be transmuted into into disrespect, which unfortunately it does get transmuted into disrespect, but it should not. And I'll stop here, and I'll I'll have you answer this question. I think the way I got to this medically conservative approach is that also has to do with when I came into cardiology. So when I started in the CCUs as a student, um, this was at the time when, uh, you know, VT and and VF and PVCs heralded real bad trouble in CCU. And so there was a strong movement to suppress ventricular ectopy and post-MI patients, and we had drugs that did it. And and of course, we all know what happened with the CAS trial. So for a decade, for a decade, the, the, the therapeutic fashion, the expert opinion, the standard of care was to suppress ventricular ectopy because observational studies had shown that ventricular ectopy associates with higher risk of sudden death. And we were wrong. We were killing people. Remember, the end, the number needed to kill in the CAS trial was 29. So for every 29 patients we treated with the standard of care, 
we were killing patients. And so that was number one. And then the second thing is when I went to Indiana and I had an outpatient clinic at the, at the then Wishard Hospital, the county hospital, we were using hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women because we believed uh, observational studies had shown that it associated with lower cardiovascular outcomes. And then when the Women's Health Initiative, the WHI study comes out, we find that that actual standard of care and expert opinion was wrong and we were we were harming patients. And so I sort of came into cardiology and, and these two huge things were just completely reversed. And we take it for granted now because there's they're historical. And so I had this sort of always had this bent that, you know, I wasn't sure um, of all the things that we were doing. We were. And so I had this sort of sort of Bayesian prior that we're probably more sure of things than we should be. And then, you know, I became friends with Andrew Foy and Vinay and Adam and and we got together and decided to write this because sometimes people, you know, when we wrote these sort of contrarian kind of pieces saying, we all should reassess this and we we should prove this, that we sort of got labeled as nihilist and cynics, like we're, 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 we don't believe in, in things. And this is absolutely not true. And that's where we, that's where we sort of came up with that medically conservative piece. It begins by saying that we're not nihilists. We believe in many of the things that have happened in medicine and I mean, in cardiology have been amazing. It's a great time to be a patient. But so uh, I think medical reversals and the, and the things that I experienced in my career was a, a large reason for that. And, and, and the second part of your question is, you know, how would I respond to people? I would say what my response would be, is that I appreciate the gains that have been made. I mean, in my in the EP lab now is much better. So technological improvements have been great. But I would my response to the to the, the to the movers and to the innovators would be that the onus of proof that something works, something that's more expensive or more invasive, the onus of proof is on you to show us that it works in a randomized controlled trial because that is the way that we have to prove things worked. I mean, there were, I think, more than 30 observational studies showing that HRT associated with better outcomes and one randomized control reversed, one randomized control trial reversed at all. So I'm not, we're not nihilist. We just believe that um, uh, things need to be proven uh, in trials before they're accepted over the standard of care. Yes, and so um, you know, as a as a follow up question to to that answer is, um, and this sort of also dabbles into uh, your recent piece on sensible medicine about uh, you know what you perceive is is wrong with with journals and and with investigators, and it's 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 a poignant piece because it takes a poignant stance, and and that is that you know for better or for worse, a lot of our studies are now being funded by you know, big pharma, big device, big what have you. And so there is a vested interest. And, in, you know, obviously the investigators and the authors and the co-authors are mandated to disclose um, that, you know, when they're publishing or when they're presenting. Um, and then you have these drug or device trials, which, uh, you know, keep showing us benefit. Um, all of which is, I mean, it's all great innovation. I mean, 
compared with where we were even five years ago with, you know, guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we now have four drugs. Um, and that's, that's all good. You know, the question becomes at what point is, is good good enough? Um, as in at what point, you know, maybe this is a philosophical question as well. And that is that what are we really chasing? Because we know immortality is not a, is not a thing. We, we have to die. Um, all of us have to die. Um, are, are, is the point, and you know, cardiology has become fairly advanced that we're, I mean, I'm sure in your practice as well, where we're treating octogenarians and nonagenarians, and, and that's fantastic. The question is, at, at what point do you say, okay, enough is enough, and we have to stop? Because the drugs and the device with the big pharma and the big, big industry are going to keep coming. Yeah, that's a, it is a philosophical question. And I like to say that whenever there are young people around, um, I think the challenge of, of my generation in the 1990s was having enough to do, having PCI, having devices, having um, uh, ablation. The, the challenge of the current physicians coming into practice, I think, is not have having things to do is whether we should be doing it. This is the question that comes up in my practice all the time. I'm always having discussions with my colleagues about whether we should uh, do this, not whether we can. Of course, we can take people to the lab and ablate their left atrium. Of course, we can, you know, put a device in. But but should we? And this is this is where this that that challenge is. A, has been made we've actually made that a challenge right because of the innovation and so it's 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 like this um uh it, it it's this progress has put us into a place where uh patients don't die of things that they used to die of and now they grow older with more comorbidities and that's a lot of the medical conservative pieces is, is is would a person with you know, what a person, if presented the data in a neutral way, would, would, would they choose to have that? Would they choose to pay this much money for an SGLT2 inhibitor in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, knowing that it reduces the uh, an endpoint of heart failure hospitalizations, but heart failure hospitalizations is only about one-fifth of the total hospitalizations. And so, that that whole problem of incremental benefit has been created by some of the success, and so part of the the medical conservative approach is to sort of um, uh, evaluate these new innovations uh, as a as a value proposition and present it to patients who have their own preferences and. Um, there are minimizers and there are maximizers, and and it's sort of our job to our job to frame that. But part of framing that is being able to being able to interpret the studies and get past the you know the the, the positive spin. And that's one of the goals that I have in my writing is just to try and help translate and help teach translation of these of these trials and and evidence. And there's nothing nefarious about what's going on it's just we're coming up against the fact that like you point out humans have a 
you know, we have an expiration date and um, it's 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 become very difficult to innovate further on, on, on top of where we're already at. Yes, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and just to, to bring home the, that point is, um, you know, with heart failure and readmissions remain a vaccine problem. And, you know, part of the issue is that the systems where we work at are obviously tracking all these readmissions and want the readmissions to reduce to, to avoid penalties from payers. And, and I get that that is fine, um, which begs to the question that we need to innovate, but maybe we need to innovate not in intervention, whether it's drug or device, but in, but in how we take care of patients or processes of care or, you know, in, in our policies. Um, because like a, a typical heart failure patient with reduced ejection fraction, those four drugs are very financially toxic. I mean, there was a recent, you know, Jack piece on, on, on this as well. Uh, and you add to that, um, you know, transcatheter edge to edge repair, uh, you know, for functional micro regurgitation. And you add to that some of the new innovations which are happening in the inner atrial device space to reduce the left atrial pressure. I mean, that is a, that is one patient, which is very expensive, you know, to the healthcare system. Um, and as a cardiologist at the bedside, I'm not even sure how many meaningful years of life we're adding on. Um, I mean, you know, that, that is what, that is what I think, you know, philosophically, I sort of, it has become a vexing question for me. I, I totally agree with you. And here's one of my tensions. One of my tensions is that you you take something like um, like transcatheter edge to edge repair. Um, I take something like that, and um, there's this. There may even there's this minimal, uh, maybe not to maybe not just take something that has a, a minimal a minimal benefit, um, maybe a statistically real benefit in that trial with carefully selected patients in a trial environment, let's say something is beneficial, um, but it's very expensive and the average effect is that it's positive. Or even if the average effect is null, that there, okay, a, a good example is the ECMO, VA ECMO trial at, at ESC. And it was a negative trial, uh, non-significant results. But you take these innovations and they may not work great on average, and they may not be high value propositions on average, but there probably are selected patients that if it was carefully used in the right patient, that it that it that it might be beneficial. And so I'm not nihilistic about it, but um this idea of this idea of always blasting every heart failure patient with with four drugs. Um sometimes I, I wonder whether. The ability to take four drugs is just a marker for um, a marker for the, a good a good prognosis. They're going to do well. Um, I just think that this is what I do on a day to day basis as a clinician. Is I try and try and take evidence and tailor it to the patient. And there are times when expensive, high you know expensive therapies, invasive therapies are beneficial. And I guess my favorite thing in all of EP, and it used to be the, one of the most boring things, but my favorite thing is a pacemaker for third degree heart block, because it's the purest of medicine, right? A patient comes in, it's like PCI of a STEMI. Patient comes in, they're sick, they're dying even, 
and you do a one hour procedure and they leave the hospital and it's just, there's just no, it's so pure. And, but that's increasingly, that's increasingly rare because now we have these incremental therapies. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I think when these innovations happened at the time that they did, you know, for example, the pacemaker or for example, you know, the primary PCI for STEMI, um, you know, th those were like real wins and, and have, have revolutionized how we take care of patients. You know, I'd like to say that, um, you know, for aortic valve stenosis, transcatheter therapies uh, fall under the same rubric for me, um, you know, as well. Um, although, again, philosophically, um, I, I, I at times wonder, uh, you know, if there would be more innovation for rheumatic heart disease in the developing world versus us putting these valves in nonagenarians. You know, I think just thinking philosophically from a global perspective. Um, and I think economy, unfortunately, drives a lot of those decisions as to where, you know, industry wants to, you know, put money because, you know, that, that is the economic slash business end of things. Um, but where, you know, how far, with regard to how far we've come, you know, both in electrophysiology or uh, interventional cardiology, I, I should say procedural cardiology, because heart failure is slowly following where EPN intervention went. Um, where do you see us going? Like, where do you see cardiology going? Because I, I genuinely feel we are at the other end of the spectrum now, where it's just too much. But that's what I, that's what I personally feel. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think, yes, we're... Uh, I, I, I think there's something to that, but I, I maybe I'm naive about... Maybe I'm naive about structural, but I mean, I see I see us making big gains in in structural cardiology with valves. I mean, just the idea that a patient can have a aortic valve replacement um, through the leg and go home the next day is is pretty amazing. And then, you know, it's it's, you know, uh, it, and I totally agree with you in rheumatic disease. And one of the reasons why I think it's right is because rheumatic patients are sicker and younger. So there's, there's, there's more to gain. Um, uh, so I, I see, I see cardiology innovating significantly in the structural field. I'd be worried if I was a heart surgeon, uh, right now. Uh, so that's, that's one gain. I think that I'm very excited about conduction system pacing in, in, um, in my field, because now we can, we can pace the ventricle without creating dyssynchrony. Um, we can, uh, we're we're trying to show, and we we may show that a single lead can replace what a CRT can do. And you know, as far as young people coming into the field, um, there's there's a lot to learn um, in these areas that you can really help people. But I would still get back to your idea about processes and um, and how best to apply. Uh, the therapies that we have now. And I would argue my medically conservative brain would argue that when we implement policies, um, they need to be uh, implemented in an evidence-based way. And um, I, I, I think that we could randomize much more than we do in terms of, uh, in terms of processes. And, and we, we, we have a lot of, we have a lot of ideas that if something is good intentioned, then we should just, we should just do it like the hospital readmission um, penalty policy. I mean, to me, that just 
teaches us so much about unintended consequences and the important about importance of randomization before. So I think I see a lot of benefit in valvular heart disease. I see a lot in I see a lot in 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 my field of pacing, and um, I think there'll be a lot of developments in in processes of care. Um, my wife is a palliative care physician, and I I really wish we would innovate more in terms of uh, using using palliative care uh, in, in our field, as, but there's resistance to that. Um, final few questions. Um, how meaningful has something like sensible medicine been for you as a clinician? You know, when, because those are personal, you know, personal thoughts that you're sharing with the world. Uh, I, I, do, I do think they come from a vulnerable space, right? Um, how, how, how fulfilling has that been for you? How meaningful has that been for you? Yeah, so thanks for mentioning sensible medicine. I also keep my own personal substack called Stop and Think. And I think I'm so glad you asked because I'm very grateful for being able to write in journals and I'm extremely grateful to uh to Medscape for giving me a voice there. But journals and and mainstream medical media as ad supported um is really advertisement supported ultimately and the idea our idea with with substack and it's substack now but it might be something else in in the years to come is that my idea is that it's an independent you're allowed to voice your opinion it's not supported by advertisement it's supported by subscribers um and i really see you know there's a movement in in journalism Many journalists are going to this independent model, and I'm I'm hopeful. I'm not for sure, but I'm hopeful that there may be a role for independent medical thinking, and that's the idea behind uh, the Substack model right now. And it is extremely fulfilling to be able to 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 be able to write um, without the with. More independence, and has um, has that been? Um, I mean, I'm well to to say that it's been it's been impactful. Obviously, it has been impactful. You know, that's the reason why um, you know you do it, and that's I mean, you have you have you have a voice, and people people would want to read what you have to write, and you know, listen to what you have to say. Um, do you see this? Um, becoming more um regular maybe not 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 the right word but do, do what i'm trying to get at is do do you do you see yourself being more prolific when it comes to medical writing well we're never going to we're never going to replace you know new england journal of medicine jack and we don't aim to and and you know we need we need we need medical journals to adjudicate science but i hope that I hope that an independent medical thinking model of content, right? So it could be writing, it could be podcast, it could be video, um, that there'll be a role uh, for that. And I'm I'm glad that there is. And, you know, we've been at Sensible Medicine for a year and we have, we have a lot more subscribers than I thought we would have. Um, we hope that it'll build into more people contributing. Um, But one of, you know, just for your listeners, one of the things that I think uh, uh, builds success 
in um, medically right medical writing and medical content is persistence is persistence the the podcast this week in cardiology in the first year or two probably had 30 listeners and it it the the thing that makes a podcast successful or a, a, a you know a place like Substack successful and even medically me, medical media sites is just persistence um and and building on it and um nobody starts nobody starts being able to write like Malcolm Gladwell so it just takes time and and I learn um I learn as like oh one of the favorite things that I have on the podcast is now reader feedback when I get good feedback and people tell me I'm wrong I'm like this is great content because I can say here's what I thought here's what someone said and here's what I think now and um that's been my whole life as a doctor is just is just learning I mean the, the things Three of the most common procedures that I do today didn't even exist um, when I was in training. So persistence in learning and and, uh, and and an independent model is is my hope. So we'll see. Thank you for that. And you know, any any final thoughts for house staff, fellows in training, early career cardiologists, and you know, listenership at large from you? Yeah, I would say that. I would say that I would 100% do this, do the same, make the same choices and do this job again. I would recommend it. I have two children, neither went into medicine, but if they had asked me, I would have said, do this. It's a, it's a, it's a great field. And it sounds so banal to say, but it's a great field because we help people, you know, people come in with sickness and I always say this because it's a helpful reminder, but we are here to help and we 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 help people. We don't always succeed, but we're always trying. And w- whether we help them with meds or we help them with devices or we help them even just with caring and 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 being there, uh it's 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 a great field. And I um I'm as enthusiastic now at in in after 26 years as I was when I started. Yeah, no, Dr. Mandrola, thank you for your time. Um, it, it's been a great conversation. You know, always great to connect and, and learn from you. And so good to see that you are um, as engaged as you ever have been, uh, you know, all through these years. And uh, for those of you who are listening who want to share feedback on this episode, uh, do write to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You know, this obviously will be shared across all social media platforms, including LinkedIn and Twitter. And um, if any of you have any feedback, either for me or for Dr. Mandrola, I'm, I promise you that, uh, you know, we'll share uh, the feedback with him. And, you know, he like he's he does with, um, you know, his sensible medicine writings or with his podcast will get back to us uh, with his response. So thank you again for listening. And until next Monday, um, have a good week, everyone. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.